I do want to jump into it this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 1. Uh, that's where we're going to be today. So again, Mark chapter 1. Uh, again, if it's been a little while, maybe this is the first time you're joining us today, we've been talking about this new normal that we're about to walk into. And what we've been praying for is that this new normal uh, would actually be better and more God-glorifying than anything we've experienced before. And so we talked last week about uh, rest because, quite honestly, <clears throat> it's not normative for us to be resting very much today, especially living in a very busy Dallas culture in the middle of a global pandemic, right? There's a lot of different things that are piling up, and rest is not very normative for us today. Like, what's normative is work, and what's normative is fear and anxiety, it's not normative to take an entire day off of work and your responsibilities just to sit there and to reflect upon the fact that God is the one who saves and is always in control and he's the one who's providing in this time. And so we are praying for a brand new normal to come in, that we would be a people that have rest as a part of our regular weekly rhythm as we trust in him to provide and to save every step of the way. Two weeks ago, we were talking about worship uh, and the power of this unified gathering because, again, that's not a very normal thing today. What's normal is consumerism. Uh, what's normal is independence and things like that. And so this morning, I just want to keep pushing us to be thinking about this new normal. Uh, even if you're in the thick of it right now and you're kind of going, okay, I've got a lot of different things pulling on me right now, and I don't really believe that I could be thinking about doing anything different or adding something to my plate. I want to encourage you to be pressing in and be praying, okay, Lord, what's the new that you want to do in me? Because here's what I know about our nature. If we don't do this right now, we don't ask the questions right now, and we don't say, okay, Lord, begin to make a change in me right now, that our nature is to quickly fall back on our normal uh, and miss this window of opportunity that's before us right now. That's our nature is to go back to what our normal is and to miss out on the things that he may be calling us to do right now. I love the way C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, The Problem of Pain. But he's talking about his own natural tendencies, and he says, my own experience is like this. I am progressing along the path of life in my normal, contentedly fallen and godless condition when suddenly there's a stab of abdominal pain that threatens serious disease or there's a headline in the news that threatens us with a little destruction and it all throws us into a storm. At first I'm overwhelmed and all my happiness looks like broken toys. But then slowly and reluctantly, bit by bit, I come into the framework of mind that I should have been at all times. And perhaps by God's grace, I succeed for a day or two, and I become a creature consciously dependent upon God and drawing its strength from the right sources. But then, the moment that that threat is withdrawn, and I love that little line right there, is mom the moment that the threat is withdrawn. And I think, as he says this, you already know what's going to take place after this, because you know what happens when the threat is withdrawn from your life. When the threat of divorce is no longer looming, you fall back into the same flirtatious patterns that you were in before. When the, same, when, the, when the threat of your health scare is done, you fall back into the same normal eating patterns as before. When the threat of being caught or found out in whatever your addiction may be, you, you go back to the norm. That's our natural tendency, and it's exactly what C.S. Lewis is talking about right here. He says, but the moment that threat is withdrawn, my whole nature, it leaps back to the toys, God had me for about 48 hours, but it was only because everything else in my life was taken away from me. Let him sheathe the sword, even for a moment. In other words, like, let him hold back the pain, even for a moment. And he says, I behave like a puppy when that hated bath is over. I shake myself as dry as I can, and I race off to acquire my comfortable, normal dirtiness, if not in the nearest manure heap, at least in the nearest flower bed. 
But church, like that's our nature. Like our nature is, as soon as the threat is over, we run back to old normal. And my hope and my prayer for us today is that we're not going to run back to our normal and that we're not going to let this window of opportunity pass us. So we're going to lean into him and we're going to listen well to the new that he may want to do in you. As Andy Stanley's been saying, I love the way he puts it. He says, it'd be a shame if we went through all this pain and we saw no gain. And so I love the way that he puts it right there. But that is my hope and prayer for us today, that we would lean into this new normal and that we would listen well and to discern what this new is that he wants to do in you and in me. So again, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1 today. We're going to pick it up in verse 16. Uh, Again, if you didn't bring it with you, you don't have it, uh, we're going to be putting it up on the screen. It'll be easy for you to follow along with right there. But if you're not familiar with Mark's gospel, it's important to understand we're going to be picking this up at the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. And so he's already been baptized. Uh, He's already been tempted by the enemy. He's already been in the wilderness for 40 days fasting and praying, tempted by the enemy. He's already gone off and he's he's begun some of his miraculous ministry. He's done a few miracles at this point in time. He's already preaching and teaching. He's already developing a little bit of a reputation And so at this point in time in his ministry, it's important that he goes and he calls the first disciples. And what I love about this passage is that he's calling these disciples into this brand new normal so that uh, they could be used by God to essentially go on and change the world. And so I want you to pick it up with me here in verse 16. Here's what it says. It says that as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon Peter and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake because they were fishermen. And so he says, come, follow me, Jesus said. And I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. And immediately they left their father Zebedee in their boat with the hired men and they followed Jesus. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever seen any kind of a a movie version of this scene, any of the Jesus movies that are out there, but every single one of them, they make me laugh a little bit because they always portray this scene as kind of like Jesus has hypnotic powers over us. Like he's like walking on the beach and he's just like, you people out there, just come and follow me. Right. And like, they're just kind of just mesmerized by his eyes or something. And they're going to, okay, crazy, creepy guy. We're going to drop whatever we do and go follow him. Um, It seems like an abnormal thing that's taking place. He just calls and says, come follow me. And they just drop what they're doing to go follow him. This is one of these scenes that it's important to understand uh, a few things that are taking place uh, in the context. First one, it's important to understand, like, this is not their first encounter with Jesus. There's, Jesus already has a reputation. People know about who he is at this point in time. Uh, Andrew, uh, we know from John chapter 1, he's already one of John the Baptist's disciples, and so he's heard about who Jesus is from the John the Baptist, and so it's not their first encounter. This isn't kind of a stranger, dangerous sort of scenario or anything like that. And so not just running off to some random guy walking by on a beach or anything like that. Other thing to understand is there's a cultural dynamic going on here between the rabbi and the disciple relationship here that I think is really, really important to understand. And so we talked about this a few years back, but uh, way back then, pretty much all Hebrew boys ended up going to Torah school by the time they were five years old. And so when my little Caleb was going to kindergarten and he's out there painting with finger paints and doing recess and learning the alphabet and things like that. All little Hebrew boys were learning and memorizing the Torah, 
We're talking about the entire thing. They're memorizing the entire Torah at five years old. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the entire thing. They're learning to read, write, uh, all by memorizing the Torah. In fact, one of the fascinating things is when, uh, on the, when, when, the, when the school year started every single year, they would bring everybody into the schoolroom and they'd have this special ceremony where they dripped honey on the tip of everybody's tongue as they read the book of Genesis out loud, all to communicate that God's word is sweet to the taste, kind of like honey on your lips. It's what the psalmist talks about in Psalm 119 when he says, how sweet are your words, O Lord. They're sweeter than honey to my mouth. And so that's the imagery that's going on. They want, un- they want them to understand this is God's word, and it is sweeter than honey, and it is that much more important to, um, to a fulfilling life. And so by the time they're 10 years old, like most Hebrew boys, they're going to have the entire Torah already memorized. And so at 10 years old, that's when the first cut is going to be made in school. Okay, that's when, uh, that, that's when, when students who were the best of the best, they would, uh, the ones who were at the top of their class, they would be able to go on and continue studying the rest of the Old Testament, Joshua through Malachi and the rest of the Old Testament. Everybody else that didn't make that cut, they'd be sent back home and they would learn the family business and go and essentially go work that back home. At 17 years old, there's another cut that took place because that was the year you needed to decide, okay, am I going to go into vocational Jewish ministry at this point in time? Like, am I going to make this a career or was this just great education at that point in time? And so at that point in time, at 17, if you decide, hey, I'm done with this thing, again, you're going to go back home, you're going to take up the family business and you're going to do what your family or what your dad did at that point in time. If the answer is yes, vocational calling is upon my life, then, um, then that's the time that you're going to decide uh, that I'm going to move forward, and you're going to find a rabbi that you admired, and you're going to go and apply to that rabbi to become his Talmud, his, uh, which is Hebrew word for disciple. Now, a couple things that are interesting that are important to point out when it comes to choosing a rabbi that you want to disciple you um, as a student. Uh, first off is you're going to look at rabbis and you're going to try to discern, okay, uh, does this rabbi have this rare quality called shmiha? Uh, and so this is a very re- re- uh, weird Hebrew word that simply means authority, right? That's all shmiha is. It simply means authority. It's a very rare quality because there's only about a dozen or so Jewish rabbis in the first century that had this quality of shmiha. Uh, it was very, very intense. There wasn't a whole lot of people that did it. Essentially, what this means is that you are a master of the Torah, number one. So you weren't just a rabbi. You didn't just have things memorized, but you mastered it. You knew all the ins and outs of the Torah. And number two, it also meant that if you had shmiha, then you had a long history of being able to do miracles, right? So, so that's immediately going to thin out a lot of people in the crowd. There's not a whole lot of people that have a long history of being able to perform miracles. And so you're a master of the Torah. You've got a history of performing miracles. And then number three, you've got to have two other rabbis who also have been confirmed as having shmiha look at you, examine your life, and confirm that you do in fact have shmiha. And so all that to say, like, this is a very exclusive club that very few rabbis had. Nevertheless, if you are a disciple, you were searching for a rabbi to disciple you, then this is one of the things you're going to be looking for. The other thing you're going to be looking for is the rabbi's yoke, not Yoke, Y-O-L-K, as my typo from a couple years ago said, but a yoke, meaning the specific set of interpretations and applications that a rabbi might hold. 
Okay, so this may be very, very similar to what you and I experience today when you're kind of going, okay, I like that pastor. I like that theologian and scholar. I like that guy online. I want to know what they have to say about this particular passage and what their particular take on this matter is. How do they apply this passage to today? That would be a very similar to what their yoke is. It is their specific set of biblical interpretations and the way that they apply certain things. And so if you're a young disciple, like you want to know what that rabbi's yoke is, because if you are a disciple of a rabbi, uh, what you're agreeing to do is to essentially take that rabbi's yoke upon you, and you're going to learn everything that that rabbi has learned, and you're going to do everything that that rabbi does, and essentially in every possible way, you're going to become exactly like that rabbi. And so once you've decided upon a rabbi, you've said, okay, this is the one I want to follow. The next step in the process is to simply apply to become their disciple. And the way that you apply is by going to that rabbi's feet. You're going to sit at their feet and uh, you're going to begin listening to them. And you're going to let him ask you a set of questions and put, put you through a series of different tests. Now, Keep in mind at this point in time, like, this is a very competitive process, right? right? Like, this, is, this is the job that all Hebrew boys dreamed of when they were young. Kind of like today when young kids, they grow up and they're like, I want to be a pastor. Like that's my dream, right? Like every young Dallasite little boy is, is dreaming of becoming a pastor, right? Uh, it's not a fireman. It's not a policeman or uh, the president of the United States or anything like that. Like that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to grow up and become a rabbi. And so this is a very, very competitive thing that they're going through, which simply means that the rabbi had the opportunity to choose the smartest, brightest, uh, most faithful kids around in order to be their disciples. And so they would find these kids and they would sit at their feet and they'd grill them with questions and put them through a series of different tests in order to find out, okay, is this kid willing to learn everything that I've learned? Is this child willing to do all the things that I call them to do? Will this person be able to carry my yoke and continue the work that God has called me to do? And so he's put to the test, and if he's not the A-team, if, if this kid is not the best of the best, then once again, the rabbi's going to send that kid home. He's going he's to go back into his family. He's going to pick up the family business. But if the rabbi is looking at this kid and he's going, okay, this is the best of the best. I believe in this kid. That he's going to make an invitation to this student. He's going to simply say, come and follow me. And, and with those words, the disciples are going to drop what they're doing. They're going to leave everything else behind and they're going to go and they're going to follow him. And they're going to learn from the, from the feet of that disciple. And they're going to learn to, 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 they're going to know everything that the rabbi knows. And they're going to do everything the rabbi does. And they're going to do whatever it takes to go and become exactly like that rabbi. And so back to the text right here. Here's Jesus, and, and we find out that, that even as a young preteen boy, he's back in the temple, and, and he's, he knows the Torah so well that he's teaching the other teachers as one who has shmiha, one who has authority, as the Word of God says right there. In, in chapter 3 of Matthew, John the Baptist, who is also a rabbi who has shmiha, he's going to come and confirm this authority in Jesus when he says, there's one coming after me, meaning Jesus, who has a greater authority than I do. It's going to happen again at Jesus' baptism. There's a second confirmation that takes place as soon as the, open, the heavens open up and the Father declares, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. On top of that, we're already seeing in Jesus that he has a track record of doing miracles. He's already turned water into wine. And we read that he's been traveling throughout the region doing miracles and healing every disease among the people. In other words, it's like Jesus is a rabbi that is overflowing with, with Shemiha. That's who he is. He is a rabbi that is overflowing with shmiha. And the irony of this whole scene is that we see this rabbi who is overflowing with shmiha, not sitting around and waiting for people to come to him, but he's going out. And he's the one that's calling out to a ragtag group of fishermen that are out there in a boat with their father, which means what? 
It means that these are the students that were sent home at some point in time and deemed not worthy enough to continue as a rabbi. In other words, Jesus, this rabbi who, is, who has all this authority in the Shmiha, he's going out and he's calling the B team. Like that's who he's calling out to. That's who he's going to right here. These aren't the best of the best. Like these aren't the most able. These aren't the most capable people in the world. These are people that are simply available to come and to follow him. I love the way one commentator wrote about it, but he said this. He says, when it came to choosing his disciples, God skipped all the wise people in his day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens. The powerful were in Rome. He passed over Herodotus, the historian, Socrates, the great thinker, and Julius Caesar. He chose people who were so ordinary, it was comical. No rabbis or teachers or religious experts or even a synagogue ruler. Half of them were fishermen. One was essentially an IRS agent, and one was a former terrorist. I mean, it's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 1 when he says, brothers and sisters, think about what you were when you were called. In other words, go back to that time that you were called to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Not many of you, he says, were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world in order to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not in order to nullify the things that are. Church, like that's what he's about. In other words, like he's not looking at your ability. He's looking at your availability. Like that's who he chooses to carry his yoke. Church, it's, it's people who are available and willing to drop whatever it is that they're doing, whatever it is that they love, whatever they thought the, 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 the direction was for their life in order to follow him. I mean, it's people like Peter, a fisherman who's like all over the map in his following of Jesus. I mean, one day he says, like, he's boldly declaring, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. I am with you, I'll never walk away. Next thing you know, he's denying that he even knows who Jesus is. I mean, one day he's walking on water, the next thing you know, like he's sinking in the middle of the ocean. Church, like that's who Peter is. Like he's not the most wise by human standards. He's not born into nobility. Like, but he's available, that's who he is, that's it. And so when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, Peter, who is available, he stands up and he begins preaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And it says that nearly 3,000 people get saved because the Holy Spirit came and empowered his work. Like church, that's how this whole story plays out. It's lay people like James and John and Stephen and Philip and Mary Magdalene and Lydia and a really, really angry guy named Saul who had all the ability in the world and no availability. Until the day that he was on the road to Damascus and he met the resurrected Jesus Christ and all of that ability matched up with an availability that was never able to be stopped. Like church, that's what he's looking for right here. He's looking for a brand new normal where men, women, and children are available right now to drop whatever it is that they're doing, to, drop, to, 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 to go a, a completely different direction as soon as they hear his voice. And for a lot of us, church, like that's exactly what he's doing right now. He is stripping away the busy in our life so that we can be available He's stripping away all the distractions. He's stripping away all the entertainment so that we can be a people that are fully and totally and completely available to him. Church, like, don't underestimate what he can do with your available. I'll never forget um, one of my favorite stories from Revive Indiana. This is about five years ago, and if you're not familiar with Revive Indiana, um, what they do is they come together into cities and in churches and they mobilize teams and churches to go into the community to share the gospel. And so we went out there, we're a part of this revival, and uh, and uh, we'll go out in the morning, and they'll go and pray with people, and they'll come back sometime around lunchtime and share testimonies of what happened that day. But I'll never forget one of the most beautiful stories I heard. This man stood in front of everybody. They're doing one-minute testimonies. His went a little bit longer. Uh, but they're doing one-minute testimonies. He just stood up there, and he goes, I've never done this a day in my life. 
Like, this is not what I do. He goes, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not well-spoken. I've never gone out and walked like this. I've never done any of these things. I'm so far out of my element, it's not even funny. I'm an AC repairman. I'm a handyman. But God, by his grace, he used me today. And he goes on and he shares this story about he and his team. There's four of them on this team, and they go out and they're engaging this family on their front lawn. And they're talking with the dad. The dad is very, very interested in, in what they're talking about, this gospel presentation. They've already prayed with him. And, and they're getting at a lot of these things, answering a lot of questions, having a great conversation. But they just kept getting distracted over and over again. And he goes, finally, it came to a head. One of his kids ran out. And he goes, Dad, Dad, we need you inside. The AC is finally broken. It's sweltering inside. We're dying in there. We need you to come fix the AC. And this guy who's sharing this story, he just pipes up and he goes, like he's been sitting there just kind of listening to everybody else do this conversation because he's never really done this before. But he goes, at that, I stood up and I go, wait, wait, your AC is broken? And they're like, yeah, it's burning up inside. And he goes, that's what I do. I'm an AC man. And so he comes back inside and he takes a look at the AC and he goes, by God's grace, it's something minimal that I'm able to fix right there. And so he goes and he tinkers with the AC. He gets it to start working. And the family is so overwhelmed with gratitude and grace that they invite the whole team into the living room. They continue sharing the gospel. And he goes, we got to pray with three people to receive Jesus Christ as Lord that day. And this man just stood in front of this entire church. He goes, church, like, this is not what I do. Like, I'm not the evangelist. I never went to seminary. I'm not that guy. I'm not the A-team, if you will. Like, I, don't, I didn't even want to engage in this conversation. But by God's grace, he used me, an AC repairman. And church, what I'm saying to you right now is like, don't underestimate what he can do with your availability. Like, that's what he does. He empowers availability. Like, that's what he does. He doesn't need you to be strong because he's already strong. He comes and he brings power and mercy to the weak, and he uses the weak in order to shame the strong. Church, that's what he does. I mean, I'll never forget back at DTS, one of my good friends ended up winning the preaching award my, my final year at DTS, which is a whole other story in and of itself. But uh, he's a good buddy of mine. And what was interesting about this thing is he, he was well known for being incredibly anxious and nervous all the time. He hated the thought of preaching in front of a crowd. And I'll never forget, we were coming into the final year and we were going into a preaching class and he was so nervous and so anxious about getting up there and preaching in front of a class. He was just sweating all the time. He's like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this, but I feel like I need to do this because God's called me to do this. And I remember I, I wasn't thinking a whole lot going into it. I remember sitting in the middle of this class and he gets up there to begin preaching. And all of a sudden, you wouldn't believe it. It was just unbelievable power came out of his voice. I mean, I, we're sitting there in a classroom. We're supposed to be grading these sermons, right, being hypercritical and things like that. And I am weeping at the power of what is coming out of this man's voice. I mean, I remember calling my wife later on being like, you will not believe the power that God used in Willie today. Like, this man was born to preach. And there's nothing natural about that ability. But church, like, that's what he does. He comes and he empowers the available. People who, in their fear, they do it afraid, People who come in their weakness, they do it in their weakness, dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit to come and empower their weakness. And the reality, church, is like some of you need to hear that right now because it's exactly what he wants to do in you today. He wants your availability so that he can empower your weakness or whatever it is that he's given you and so that you can walk in the things that he's called you to do. I mean, don't miss this call right here because it's a call for every single one of us. I mean, look at this invitation. Jesus simply says, come and follow me. First and foremost, that is the primary call upon your life, that you and I are going to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says, come and follow me. Wherever I go, I want you to go. Whatever I do, I want you to do. Whatever I teach you, I want you to learn and absorb and make it your own. First and foremost, that's the call upon your life, that you're going to follow me wherever it is I go. But here it is. As you do that, he says, 
I'm going to send you out to become fishers of men. I'm going to make you a fisher of people. Like that's the call, church. It's always been the call that we're going to be following the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, as we know the things that he knows, as we learn the things that he's learned, as we do the things that he calls us to do, that he's going to send us back into the world to become fishers of men and women and children. That we're going to go and do those kinds of things. And what I love about this image right here, church, is like fish are different. They just are like there's big fish, there's tiny fish, there's blue fish, there's red fish, there's all kinds of fish, right? And with this variety of different fish, like there's a lot of different ways that you can fish. I don't know if you know this, but like I was watching this, I saw this Instagram video this past week. This dude is fishing with a leaf on his hook and he's catching fish. And he just wanted to prove like he did, I'm not kidding. He takes a leaf from a tree, puts it on his little hook, throws it in the water and immediately fish are biting. Church, I don't know how you do that. I mean, I could literally camp out next to a fish feeder on a pond all day long and I'm not gonna catch a thing. This joker's putting leaves on the end of his hook and he's catching fish. Like other people are into noodling. I don't know if you've ever seen noodling. Um, really, really weird deal. People drive out into this river or they, they boat out into this river and they, go, they, they stick their arm down these holes and they're just waiting for this giant fish to come and swallow their arm essentially. And like that's how you catch a fish. Some people are more old school and they like a little rod and reel way. And uh, even with that, there's variation. You've got real worms or you've got, you got plastic worms. You've got red ones, green ones, blue ones, all different kinds of colors. You could use frogs, you could l- use lizards, right? Some people like a net. Some people like, uh, some, I mean, you could do spear fishing. Uh, you can even do, you can u- use a bow and arrow. Uh, there's all different ways, there's a lot of different ways to catch a fish. And the reality is like, it's the exact same thing when it comes to people. Like some people are thinkers, and they're going to need you to spend a little bit more time sharing the rationale behind the faith. Like these are going to be people that ask a lot of questions. These are going to be people that are, that are drawn to apologetics and the reasons for the faith. These are the people that are going to devour all the books. It's the entire ministry of Ravi Zacharias, who we were honoring this past week. He, he passed away this past week, but he was one of the leading apologists and evangelists in our nation. But that was his whole appeal. He's appealing to people who are thinkers and they want to know the rationale. They, want to, they have all the questions and the reality is like some of us are going to, some people are going to need you to go down that path with them. That's a very valid way to fish for people. Other people could care less. Other people could care less about all your arguments. They don't care about your beautiful prose. Like they don't, they don't want to hear about you talk and talk and talk about the faith. Like they want to know if you care. That's the thing. Like they're feelers and stuff. They want to know if you care. Like they want to see the love and they want to feel the love before they're ever able to believe the love that you're, you're sitting there talking to them about. Like, it's the very reason that Jesus spends as much time caring as he does sharing in his public ministry. I mean, don't miss this about Jesus. The very next scene in Matthew chapter 4, it's going to say that Jesus went all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, that was very much a part of what he did. He was a preacher and a teacher. He was out there proclaiming the good news of the gospel and what the kingdom was going to be like. And so there's absolutely a time and a place for that. But I want you to see it's not the only thing that he does. He keeps going and we see that he says that he's out there healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Again, in verse 24, it's going to say that his fame spread throughout all of Syria and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons and those having seizures and paralytics. And it says that he healed them and it continues on and it says, so great crowds began to follow him. Why? Because he didn't just share church. He also cared. Like, that's how you fish for people. You don't just share. You also come along and you care. Like, you don't just share about the spiritual. You care about the physical and the emotional. Because Jesus came to redeem everything that's been destroyed. 
I mean, church, we we, got to understand that what happened back in the garden was so much more than just a spiritual fracture. Although, even though that was the largest thing that took place, the most detrimental thing that took place. I mean, men and women were supposed to be co-equal image bearers of God, working together for the good of creation. And now we're talking about things like power struggles and divorce and abuse in the home and things like that. And so Jesus comes along and and he's not just talking about the four four spiritual laws. Uh, He talks about loving one another and serving one another, caring for one another. Over 60 different times in the New Testament, we're going to hear the same thing. And and it's not just your friends and your family and people that are easy to love. He talks about doing that exact same thing for your enemy, like caring for those who are your enemy, praying for those who persecute you. And he doesn't just talk about it. We see this in Jesus. He doesn't just preach about it. We see this modeled in him too. He eats with the tax collectors. He's sitting there with the sinners. And he openly forgives a woman who's caught in adultery. Why? Because he came to redeem everything sin to destroy. Church, back in the garden, there was an abundance of provision. And now we're talking about things like homelessness and joblessness and a ground that doesn't want to be worked. And so we care about these things because Jesus cared about these things. He comes along and he says, like, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did them unto me. In other words, church, like when you fed the hungry, it's like you were doing it to me, Jesus says. Like when you gave the thirsty a drink, it's like you were giving me a drink. When you clothed the naked, it's like you were doing it to me. When you cared about the least of these, it's the exact same thing as if you were doing it to me. Church, like the garden was supposed to be full of peace and unity, and now we're talking about things like denominations and divisions all over the church and racism and sexism and things like that. And so, yeah, we care about things that we read about in the news, like Ahmaud Arbery, and Oscar Grant and Dylan Roof and all these things that we read about in the news because in Ephesians chapter two, we're gonna find out that Jesus already tore down the dividing wall of hostility that was between us. His purpose being, Paul says, to create in himself one brand new humanity out of the two, thus establishing peace between us. In other words, he cares about our interpersonal relationships. He cares about the unity that we have with other people that look different than us, than think different than us, that believe different than us. He cares about having peace between us. Paul's gonna say in Galatians chapter three, he's gonna say that in Jesus Christ, there's no longer any Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, male nor female, because we're all one in Jesus Christ. And so we care about these things, church. We care about unity. We care about when there's divisions. Like it's not just the four spiritual laws all the time. Back in the garden church, it was supposed to be about health and strength and physical wholeness all the time. And now we're talking about things like sickness, and cancer, and COVID-19, a global pandemic. Are you kidding me? And so, yeah, church, he's not just out there preaching. Like, he went to the sick because he cared about the sick. Like, he went to the hungry, and he fed the hungry because he cared about the hungry. He prayed for the possessed because he cared about people who were possessed by demons. Can you imagine this church? Like, these are people that are most, the most opposed to his life, death, and resurrection. He actually cared about them. Like, he spoke to the lame, and he touched the blind because he cared, church. And so, yeah, he didn't just come preaching because he came to redeem everything that sin destroyed. And here it is, church, because he cared, it says that his fame continued to spread and large crowds continued to follow Jesus. In other words, like all that caring, it just, it just enhanced all the sharing that he came to do. And so, so next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about the sharing element, but, I, but I'm just wondering today, church, like if care is a part of the new that he may want to do in you. And beyond that, like if care is a part of the new that he wants to do in us collectively here at this church body, that we wouldn't just be pockets of people that care about one another, care about our community, that would be an entire church body coming together and always looking out for the good of one another, that cares about it when people get sick, 
that cares about it when people aren't able to provide for their needs, that cares when they're going without or when they're experiencing loss. And I'm just wondering if that's part of the new that God may want to do in us. I've told you before, one of my heroes of the faith, one of my favorite people in scripture is this lady named Tabitha. And what I love about it is there's not a whole lot said about her, but what the little is said about her is it's an incredible testimony. We read about it in Acts chapter 9, but all we read about Tabitha is that she's described as a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's who she is. She's a follower of Jesus Christ who is always doing good and helping the poor. What an incredible legacy, right? I love that about her. Like, that's her reputation. She's a disciple of Jesus Christ who's just always doing good and helping the poor. And it seems like she had an incredible impact on the world around her because a little later on, a few verses later, we're going to find out she actually dies. Um, not for long. She's actually raised back from the dead. One of the few people in the New Testament that that actually happens to. But before she's raised back to life, we read about it in verse 39. Peter goes in to visit her body. And I want you to see what it says. It says, all the widows stood around him crying. And they're showing him the robes and other clothing that made them while she was still alive. In other words, like she's one of these ladies that just love to serve other people. She's making them clothes and she's making them all these other kinds of things. Maybe she was a widow herself and she's looking out for other widows at that exact same time. But what I love about Dorcas's story right here is that there's nothing flashy about her story. She's just a faithful and available woman who's willing to share and willing to care. That's it. And I don't know if you've ever thought about or ever known a Tabitha before, but like when I read her story, I'm reminded of so many people around here who are leading the charge and caring for our community well. I'm thinking about the Ellie Langstons of the world, the Trisha Mills, right? I'm thinking about the Don Moody's who's out there visiting people and dropping things off at your doorsteps like all the time. I'm thinking about the Linda Coles who are out there investing with refugees' lives, Julie Hess, Randy Hess, Dick Simmons, Gary O'Neill, Marty Paris, the Moonies, the Boyds. I'm thinking of Caitlin Mullins from about 10 plus years ago. Many of you guys might remember her story. Maybe you've heard her husband Cameron come and talk about the beginning of For the Nations, which is one of the most um, effective refugee outreaches in all of Dallas. But I love her story. Many of you guys don't know this, but like Caitlin was a kindergarten teacher at the time when she was just in the community caring for some of her students. It was during one of the breaks and she needed to come and deliver some homework to some of her students. And she goes to these apartment complexes that are over near the Vickery Meadow area and off of 635, a little bit further. And um, she's walking around this apartment complex and she realizes this is an entire complex largely full of refugees that are brand new here to Dallas. And she's engaging with some of these families and she looks inside the home and realizes there's no furniture in these homes. And she's looking down at her students' feet and realizing, hey, like their feet are busting out of their shoes. They don't have cold, they don't have winter coats for the winter coming in. And she starts paying attention and she cares about her students' needs. And I love her story because it's just a kindergarten teacher that's sitting there in a community paying attention to the people that are around her and she cares. And she's looking around and saying, there's a need here. There's hurt that's taking place right in front of my face. And she leaves everything behind her. She leaves what she's doing. She quits her job and she just begins starting a backyard Bible club and inviting people from the church. Many of you guys were a part of this. You just came out and started sharing Bible stories. And you started seeing physical needs that were there. And you started doing clothes drives, clothes drives. And you started doing food drives. And you started interacting with the families and things like that. Church, like that's what it looks like to fish for people. It's showing up to the food pantry and packing bags and distributing food to people in need. It's sitting on a benevolence team or giving generously to a benevolence fund to help people that have legitimate need. It's showing up to a graduation parade when you don't have students of your own. 
and you're going and you're driving around these places and you're celebrating people that are, that are graduating and you've never met them a day in your life simply because you want them to feel love and, and you want them to feel um, how special of a day that it is. Like that's what it looks like, church. We're talking about like writing letters to people that are, in ice, that are isolated and alone right now. Like we're talking about bringing a meal to your neighbors that don't have any interaction with anybody else. We're talking about going to feed my starving children and investing in this place and and, and making meals and sending them all around the country. We're talking about making cookies for a neighbor. Or we're talking about texting people in your community group or your neighbors, people on your street, just letting know that you care and that you want to be praying for them in the middle of the season. Church, like that's how you fish for people. And the beauty of fishing for people is that there's a lot of different ways that you can fish. But the truth of the matter is, church, that it all comes back to care. And so I hope, I hope you hear me like this is my hope and my prayer for us, that the brand new normal for us will be that we would be a gathering of very, very normal people who are simply available to share and care. And so here's what I want to ask you to do. We've been having a lot of senior citizens around here that have been, um, that have been calling in and just saying, hey, you know what, Aaron, uh, I, I know the church is going to be gathering together again in the very near future. We're going to be staying far away for quite a while until there's a vaccine that comes in place. We're going to be isolated. We're alone. And reality churches, we just want to come together. We want to love them. We want to show them that we care. And so we've had a number of groups that have come together. And and next week, they're going to come and start delivering care packages to some of the seniors that are in our church. And here's what I want to ask you to do. I'm going to put this up on the screen right here. But I'm asking that you would do this, that you would write a handwritten note. Maybe it's to someone specific in our church body you want to love and care for. Maybe it's a number of those people that you want to reach out to. If you don't have specific names, you can keep it general, uh, but clearly label the names on the outside of whatever envelope you have, but you would clearly write a handwritten letter to someone in our church body that may be isolated and feeling alone. If you've got children, I want to encourage you to draw them a picture, have the kids draw them a picture, and just let them know that we pray, we're praying for you, we love you, we care about you, we're going to be missing you uh, while you're away. Uh, if you've got anything else you want to bring by, maybe it's a care package or something like, like, like that, we're just asking you to come and would you dr- drop it off here at the DBC church offices this next week. By June 3rd is when we're asking for it to be. So you're going to have all the way until June 3rd to come in to do this. We're going to plan to deliver these things on June the 4th and June the 5th. If you happen to be a person that wants to lead some different care initiatives, a number of these pockets are jumping up all over the place. I want to invite you to come and to reach out to Brian Radabaugh. Again, brian at dallasbible.org. And we're going to be organizing these different care pockets, some of which are going to be writing letters to people that are in need. They're going to be delivering care packages. Some people are just going to be doing drive-by parades and things like that. But the bottom line, church, is that my hope and prayer is that we are a church that cares for our community well, that we care for one another, and that we love one another, that we serve one another, that we give our lives for one another, and that by doing so, God is going to receive praise and glory and honor, and that large gatherings of people will follow him as a result. And so that's my hope and prayer, that this new normal would be a gathering of people around here who are available to go, to share, and to care. And so with that, I want to invite you to pray with me. But Father, we just want to tell you that we love you, God. Lord, we Jesus, we love you that while we were lost and dead in our sins, and you still cared for us, Father. You sent us your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come and to live the life that we could not live and to die upon a cross as a substitute for our sins so that we could live now and for all of eternity with you, Lord Jesus. You never stopped caring even though we rejected you and walked away from you, Father. We love you and we praise you and we thank you for that. Father, I pray in Jesus' name right now that that would be our brand new normal, not just sharing, but caring, and not just caring, but sharing as well. 
that we would be a people that are unavailable no more. God, that we would come to you with arms open wide, willing to leave behind whatever it is that we were clinging to in our past. That God, that we would let go of these things, Lord Jesus, that we would run with you and in following you, that we would say yes to the call to go out and to be fishers of men. Father, that you would come and empower our availability. God, that people would recognize that you are the king of all kings, you are the Lord of all lords, you are the great I am, you are the God in heaven who always sees them no matter where they are. Father, would you come and would you do that work in and through us today? God, we do love you, we praise you, and we're looking for you to do a brand new thing in us. And so let us not come to you today with hardened hearts, let us receive from you today. Lord, we love you again, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen.